This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello and welcome. Welcome to African News Tonight from the English to Africa service of The Voice of America, your source for Pan-African news and world developments. I'm Yehiyaz Wuhib in Washington. Coming up on African News Tonight... And so some of the things that we were looking into here, Republicans had the momentum going into Election Day on Tuesday. That's journalist Pearl Matibi speaking about the U.S. midterm elections. Details coming up also. Counting is still underway from yesterday's U.S. elections. We get an update on COP27 talks in Egypt. And in Tunisia, candidates are preparing for elections next month. We'll have these stories and more on African News tonight. We start with our top story. U.S. voters headed to the polls yesterday to decide control of the U.S. Congress. But with vote counting still ongoing, many races are still too close to call. And it is unclear if Democrats will retain their narrow majorities in the House and Senate or if Republicans will take control. VOA's congressional correspondent Catherine Gibson reports from Georgia. Americans voting on the direction the country will take for the next two years, choosing if it is time for Republican leadership or if President Joe Biden will continue to have the support of a Democratic Congress. I definitely want to keep the House blue, um, so I made sure to vote uh, Democrat. More than a third of the U.S. Senate was up for re-election this year. Republicans needed to win just one additional seat to overcome Democrats' narrow majority. Democrats had an early loss in Florida where Congresswoman Val Demings... Our democracy, it still matters. ...failed to beat Republican Senator Marco Rubio. When you see the results across this country tonight, that's what it's all about. The people who make this country great have been forgotten. A handful of Senate races still too close to call will determine which party has the majority. In Georgia, the vote count is narrowly split between Republican Senate candidate Herschel Walker and Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock, who reminded supporters of the stakes of this election. Women and their right to choose is on the ballot. We got to show up tomorrow. An argument that resonated with many female and independent voters in the suburbs. Georgia voter Heather Packer. I am voting for things to stay Democrat, to be honest, just because of uh, all the, uh, the abortion right issues. Um, that's really important to me that a woman still have the right to choose. Um, and um, so that swayed my opinion strongly in the way that I voted. Historically, the party in power loses midterm elections. For some Georgia voters, this election is an opportunity to express their dissatisfaction with Biden. Georgia voter Betsy Nenick. I don't think he's made many of his own decisions. I think he's more of a spokespiece for, um, for this far left and special interests. All 435 U.S. House seats were also up for re-election, with Democrats securing some key early wins in the Virginia suburbs of Washington, D.C. There were isolated reports of delays in casting and counting ballots, some due to machine malfunction. But overall, the voting around the country ran smoothly. Officials may not be able to finalize results for several more days. Catherine Gibson, VOA News, Atlanta, Georgia. 
In more of the U.S. midterm elections, we have on the phone Pearl Matibi, State Department and White House correspondent. Thanks for being with us today. Uh, hello. Uh, thank you very much. What were you watching for on Election Day? Uh, that's a great question. So pre- uh, prior to the election, I had been briefed by uh, Doug Schwartz, who is the director of the Quinney Quinnipiac University poll, and Dr. Lisa Bryant, who is the current chair of the Department of Political Science at California State University. And so some of the things that we were looking into here, Republicans had the momentum going into Election Day on Tuesday with high hopes that they would win back the House. The Senate, on the other hand, was widely expected that it would be decided by very close races. Um, So one of the things that we were looking for, for example, in Georgia, as you just heard uh, on the show uh, a few minutes ago, we were looking at the Warnock race, we were looking at the governorship race between Stacey Abrams uh, and Brian Kemp. As you can see, the Republican governor, Brian Kemp, did win the election. Um, So these are some of the things that we had been uh, looking for. And who, in in fact, is going to end up controlling either the House and the Senate. And also these elections, depending on who ends up having control, not only of Congress, but also of the statewide governorships, will lean more to more uh, Democratic governors or more Republican governors. This election is a referendum on the president. It's both a referendum of President Biden and a referendum on former President Donald Trump. Pearl, uh, you toured polling stations in Washington, D.C. Can you tell us a little about what you observed in that jurisdiction? Yes. uh, So the polling station, I'll just mention one of them. That polling station would be Cleveland Park Library that is in Washington, D.C., and that that polling station had the uh, opportunity to speak to the Washington, D.C. Board of Elections spokesperson. His name is Nick Jacobs. He told us that even before polls had opened, the mail-in ballots, they had already 100,000 people in Washington had already cast their ballots prior to that. I was able to observe, um, you know, voters going in and coming out, able to talk to some of those voters. We were able to ask them about how do they supervise the elections, what do they do in terms of reaching out to voters. And then after the election uh, last night, We managed to go to the mayor's uh, election watch party. So the current mayor in Washington is Muriel Bowser. She was the incumbent. She has already uh, been serving two terms. She won a third term. But while I was at that polling site, I met members of the campaign team from her opposition, who is uh, Rodney Red Grant. Now, Rodney Red Grant was running as an independent And his campaign team was out encouraging uh, voters. Um, And the purpose he wanted to to run is he wanted to oust uh, Muriel Bowser, of course. He was running on issues of public safety, on youth, on seniors programs, and displaced citizens and affordable housing. But it turns out in the end that uh, Muriel Bowser ended up winning that election. I went to to both uh, watch parties. Uh, both to Rodney Red Grant's one. He held his watch party in Washington, D.C., downtown, and Muriel Bowser was holding hers at the Hook Hall uh, in Washington. Pearl Matibi, State Department and White House correspondent, thank you for your input. Thank you very much, sir.
That was journalist Pearl Matibi, who covers U.S. politics and policy in Washington. For the latest on the U.S. midterm elections, be sure to check out voaafrica.com and voanews.com and tune in into your favorite VOA programs. In Cairo, heads of government, world leaders and activists are debating ways to battle climate change at COP27. VOA's Heather Murdoch is following the talks and takes a look at today's action. Welcome to African News Tonight, Heather. Thank you. Let's start with a quick look at the key topics on today's agenda. Well, today at COP27, uh, it was all about money. It was dubbed Finance Day at the UN Climate Change Conference. And um, this is arguably the most important topic that is happening in these two weeks. Um, As we all know, it is much cheaper for countries or companies or people to pollute than not to pollute. So finding a way to pay for the initiatives people are talking about, finding a way to pay for reducing emissions, saving the globe from from global warming, um, preventing, helping developing countries that are already suffering from climate change-related disasters, and helping those same communities, the poorest communities in the world, uh, prepare for future disasters that we know are coming, all has to be paid for. So today was a long list of high-level meetings about finance, including finance ministers from all over the world and the World Trade Organization, um, discussing how can we pay for this. So it's an incredibly complicated topic, but we are hoping that today and the meetings that will come from today will uh, bring forth some clear change in how to finance climate change initiatives. And next, uh, there were announcements from China on its contributions to a fund to help poor countries pay for climate damage. Can you tell us more about this? Yes. The Special Envoy for Climate Change, Xi Jinping from China, spoke today, and he said that his country planned to help pay for poor countries to deal with climate disasters. He said that China is not obligated to do so. Um, China is listed by the World Trade Organization as a developing country itself. However, it's still incredibly significant. China is the world's biggest country by population, the world's biggest carbon emitter, um, second by the U.S., and also the world's second biggest economy. So anything that China and a country like the U.S. also um, does to help countries around the world deal with this is incredibly significant and important, and um, hopefully other wealthy countries and large countries will follow suit. And lastly, how about the U.S.? Did it have anything to say today? Uh, yes. Uh, his counterpoint, uh, counterpart, the U.S. Special Envoy for Climate Change, John Kerry, also spoke, and he spoke about carbon offset. And this is another scheme to help make climate change initiatives financially viable. Um, basically, it means you don't actually reduce emissions yourself or your company or your country. You pay somebody else to do so. Um, and while this is one way to actually make it cost-effective to reduce carbon emissions, it does get a lot of critique because basically there's not a lot of oversight. There's no global commission on how to make sure when you're paying someone to reduce emissions that they're actually doing so and that they're actually helping the climate. And a lot of experts agree that if we as a world can possibly reduce emissions enough to stay below the 1.5 degrees Celsius above 
the pre-industrial levels. And that's the target that this conference and the past conferences have been trying to meet. If it's even possible for that to happen, countries and people and companies have to reduce emissions. It's not ever going to be enough to pay others to do so. VOA's Heather Murdoch, thank you for your input. Thank you. You're listening to African News Tonight on The Voice of America. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. Tunisia's Independent High Authority for Elections says it has accepted 1,058 candidacy applications for legislative elections on December 17th. Head of the Independent Authority, Farouk Bouaskar, says 1,427 applications were submitted and those who were rejected can appeal to the administrative court. VOA senior analyst Mohamed El Shanawi discussed the prospects of a fair and transparent elections with Sarah Yerkes, a senior fellow at Carnegie's Middle East program. There are a lot of questions about transparency that have been popping up throughout this entire electoral process. But I think the bigger question is, do these elections really even matter? And what we've seen since July 25th, 2021, when Saeed initiated his self-coup, he's been directly attacking the parliament and he illegally and unconstitutionally acted to first prevent the democratically elected members of parliament from serving out their terms. And now he's been in charge of overhauling the entire role of the parliament. So the electoral law that governs these elections was not created in a transparent or a fair manner. It was produced undemocratically without the consultation of the Tunisian people. And what we've seen is that through the 2022 constitution that Saeed himself orchestrated, he's created an entire second house of parliament about which there is very, very little transparency. So I think, you know, these elections have really been somewhat of a sham from the start and that when all is said and done, I don't expect that either internal or outside observers will be able to say that these are free and fair elections. Most opposition parties in Tunisia announced their boycott of the elections, accusing Saeed of establishing an individual rule in the new system of government approved in the 2022 constitution. So most candidates are independent figures without any political history or affiliation. What would that lead to? Parliament had been growing more and more fractured since the 2011 revolution. But now, with potentially a parliament full of independents, we're likely going to see an even more fractured body that makes it very challenging for the members of parliament to agree on any sort of legislation or to address Tunisia's different political and economic challenges. But I think it's important that we remember that this is not a coincidence. You know, this was done by design. Saeed has been clear about his disdain for parties and the 2022 constitution took every measure to disempower parties and consolidate power in the hands of the presidency. So even if the opposition parties had chosen to run, they would have had very little ability to push back against Saeed. But now he's managed to actually achieve this, where you're having this incredibly fractured parliament where each individual has very little power. Observers say the electoral constituencies abroad, in which thousands of Tunisians participated in 2019 legislative elections, did not receive any applications for candidacy or only one candidate in the best cases ahead of the December elections. What's your take on Tunisians' abroad reluctance to participate in these elections? 
first of all, I think the really just onerous requirements of how to register one's candidacy made it very difficult for many, both in Tunisia and abroad, to declare their candidacy. For example, candidates were required to get 400 signatures of voters, and those people could not sign for any other candidate. So when you're talking about the districts abroad, the constituents are spread out in some cases across continents. This is really, really challenging for potential candidates. But second, I think that what we've seen is less interest in politics amongst Tunisians writ large, particularly those who are living outside of the country. You know, this is not affecting their day-to-day lives nearly the same way that it affects Tunisians that are in the country. And even amongst Tunisians living in Tunisia, the interest in politics has really dropped as we've seen the economy just get worse and worse. And people are far more concerned about their own ability to feed themselves and their families, their ability to find employment, less interested in politics. And then finally, I think the third reason that we've seen this is that the new electoral law changed the number of seats and the number of electoral districts. So there used to be 18 overseas constituencies, and there are now just 10 which is confusing and I think has confused some potential candidates and just added an additional barrier to those potential candidates who wanted to run in this election. And that was Sarah Yerkes, a senior fellow at Carnegie's Middle East program, speaking with VOA's Mohamed El-Shenawi. Nigeria's currency, the Nayara, has dropped to a record low against the U.S. dollar as Nigerians scramble to buy U.S. currency ahead of a redesign of Nayara notes. Nigerian authorities say replacing the notes will reduce inflation, combat counterfeiting, and bring money, more money into circulation. Security and economic experts warn the move could damage Nigeria's economy. Timothy Obiezu reports from Abuja. It's been just over a week since the Central Bank of Nigeria announced its plan to redesign the country's highest paper denominations, the 200, 500 and 1,000 Naira notes. Tijani Salisu is a black market dealer of foreign currencies. He says the demand for U.S. dollars has jumped since the announcement. On Thursday, the Naira traded at 860 to the dollar, nearly double the official bank rate. People that will come with the Naira to buy dollar and keep because of, the, of this situation. And if you go to the bank to the dollar, you can't see dollar for bank. The new Naira notes will begin circulating in mid-December, and the old notes will cease to be legal tender by the end of January, according to the CBN. The central bank says the move will put more money in circulation, Currently, an estimated 85% of total money in Nigeria is stashed away in homes outside the banking system. The CBN also says the new notes will help authorities curb fake currencies in circulation and keep criminals in check. Experts fault the timing of the decision. Economist and head of the Center for Social Justice, Ezo Nyebere, says with the holiday season and elections set for next year, the decision could harm Nigeria's economy. This uh, intervention is very wrongly timed and it appears to address a challenge for which it cannot provide a solution. We are discussing December 15th, which is very close to the festive season of Christmas and New Year. 
and the height of commerce. It's not particularly a good period where you start asking people to pay in their money. Normally, this should take between three and six months. There's no need to start. Last Friday, the International Monetary Fund, IMF, warned authorities to be cautious and not allow the decision to affect the confidence citizens have in the local currency and financial institutions. Onyebere says citizens' confidence in the central bank was jeopardized after the governor of the bank, Godwin Emefiele, sought a top spot in the ruling APC party while retaining his position at the bank. If you remember that Emefiele was simply drug kicking and screaming out of the uh, APC presidential race, so in, in essence, he's a politician. Uh, this is a man who wants to remind us of the independence of the CBN when he was the one that wanted to drag the CBN into partisan politics. He can no longer be trusted. Ideally, he should have been forced to resign. A former director of the Department of State Services, Mike Ejiofa, says the redesigning of the currency can do the country much good, even though there might be initial hurdles to cross. For me, I think it's a, a welcome development. And the timing, for me, is most appropriate. Don't also forget that some kidnappers have money stacked in their houses. It will also help the regulatory agencies, security agencies, monitor inflow and outflow of cash. If these monies are withdrawn, tendency for politicians to go and buy votes will not be there. It will make the Naira Exchanging the old tender for the new will be especially hard for citizens in rural areas who do not have access to banking services. Experts say that unless the CBN changes its timetable, more than 40% of Nigerians could lose their life savings when the old notes expire early next year. Timothy Obizu for VOA News, Abuja, Nigeria. A court in Senegal has dismissed a lawsuit by a fisherman's collective against a fish meal factory they had accused of polluting their village and destroying their livelihoods. Anika Hammarschlag reports from Tis, Senegal. Dozens of people filtered into the chess courthouse Thursday to hear the judge's decision. The lawsuit filed by the Taksu Kayar Collective against the Tuba Protein Marine Fish Meal Factory accused the factory of polluting the town of Kayar's air, soil, and water. The collective had asked for the temporary closure of the factory based on urgency. During the legal proceedings, the collective presented video footage of the factory's truck dumping fish waste into Kayar's lake. An independent laboratory analysis revealed high levels of toxic metals in the lake, which was also found in the town's tap water. The collective is now deciding whether to appeal the decision or to bring forward new litigation that would permanently shut down the plant. Alessi is a member of the Fisherman's Collective. We will pursue all possible legal avenues while respecting the laws of this country, he says. We will never give up, as this is a battle close to our hearts. Bubakar Sise is the lawyer for the Fishmeal Factory, formerly known as Barna Senegal. He said the factory now plans to take action against the collective. He says the factory is more than three kilometers away from Kayar, so how could a business like that pollute the air and make it unbreathable? Obviously, Barna Senegal will retaliate against these people for having discredited the factory and tarnishing its image, he says. The factory is one of at least a half dozen fish meal plants operating in Senegal. Annika Hammerschlag for VOA News, Chess, Senegal.
social media company Twitter has fired most of its 20-member staff in Ghana. The BBC quotes an email to the workforce saying the move by the company, which was recently acquired by billionaire Elon Musk, is part of an effort to reduce costs. A source told the British broadcaster that the termination notices were sent to the employees' personal accounts as they had been frozen out of their work email. VOA has not been able to confirm the reports, although other media outlets also have reported the dismissals. Their final day is set for December 4th, and they were instructed not to seek other work before that time. The notice instructed workers not to contact customers, clients, authorities, or others, and to inform the company if contacted. They noted that Ghanaian law requires three months' notice of termination and redundancy negotiated between the employer, the worker, or the union. Twitter opened the Ghana office last year, its only African site. And that wraps up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Yeheyes Wuhib in Washington. For all the latest developments on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voaafrica.com. On behalf of our producer, Mokbilia Barrow, and our engineer, Nelson Lopes, thanks for choosing the Voice of America.